Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The experience of battle in the Civil War was one that its survivors never forgot. From the smallest skirmish to the grandest charge, any combat was certain to make an indelible impression. But one battle stood out in the minds of the veterans for its duration, for the proximity of the forces, and for the extraordinary intensity of the killing. This was the fight for the mule shoe at Spotsylvania Courthouse on May 12, 1864. We'll learn about that awful day from Jeffrey D. Wirt, author of The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Office A320. Uh, legally not speaking for the university or anyone else, nor will my guests be doing so, and legally fully in compliance with fire codes, unlike last week when I was told to get the books off the top of the bookshelf going all the way up to the ceiling. They want some some space there. So this week, uh, not at risk of being burned to death during the show, uh, this week the the uh, hurricane that, that uh, came along the East Coast did so much damage in Florida is gone. We got some rain here in North Carolina, but not, not too much. I hope, uh, if you're listening from anywhere in the path of that storm in Florida or elsewhere, I hope you are all right. Uh, but that's all taken care of uh, here. And the uh, miniature flood at my house from the hot water heater that gave up the ghost last week has been uh, taken care of, new hot water heater purchased. And um, so all the things we talked about last week, we can put aside um, uh, and, and look forward to new things. I 
took care to avoid future bad news by getting my flu shot today, and uh, today being the, the first Wednesday of October 2022, as we start a new month in the 19th season of Civil War Talk Radio. I also got a shingles vaccine, because I guess as you get to be uh, the age of many of us uh, listening here, that, that that's a good thing to do. And uh, let me tell you all about it, or actually let me not tell you anything about it. I went to a home game, uh, ECU Pirates football game, a couple weeks ago with a retired colleague. And we're going up College Hill toward the stadium and complaining about our knees hurting, which people do when they're our age and walking uphill. And then he starts telling me in detail about a surgery that he had, and I, I just had to stop the conversation in its tracks. I, I'm not yet at the age where every conversation must be about health issues. Uh, and if I ever start telling you about my health problems on this show, please email me and tell me it's time to retire because that, that will be too much. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, the football game that we went to, on the other hand, that was great. ECU uh, won that night, and they won again last weekend. My modern Michigan won. Uh, next September, ECU actually plays Michigan. Uh, I've already made arrangements for a road trip. We're making them for a road trip to Ann Arbor. It will be a, uh, a titanic struggle, but we'll talk about that next year. This year, uh, the road trip that I'm planning at the moment is with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Their uh, tour this hallowed ground for uh, fall of 2022. Uh, one of their tours launches this Saturday, and uh, it's sold out, but... If you are interested in that sort of thing, check their website and sign up for one of the tours in the spring. I normally only lead one tour a year because its I don't do it as a job. I do it because I enjoy it, and uh, I'm happy to do one and, and let other historians do the others. But they had some retirements and, and other things happen, and they asked me to do uh, three this year. I did two in June, and I was a little concerned that by the third one, I would be starting to get jaded. I'm happy to say I am uh, excited like the little child before the holiday uh, uh, to be going on, on this trip starting on Saturday. No matter how many times one goes to Civil War battlefields, and, and you know this if you've, you've been to them, uh, you never see the whole thing. You always see something new. There, there's so much of interest at in all these places. And so I am... Uh, I'm truly looking forward to it. Uh, uh, so sign up for a trip in the spring. While you're at it, sign up for the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Use discount code PAR, and they will give you a 15% discount. Uh, and uh, that's what's coming up next spring. What's coming up the rest of this fall on this show, just to keep you uh, informed, of course, there won't be a live show next week, uh, October 12th as I'll, I'll be on the road. But I'll be back on the 19th. Brian Cheeseboro will be here. He is uh, the hands-on historian, as Civil War Monitor magazine called him. Works at the National Archives. He's a preservationist. He's a reenactor. Uh, administers a Facebook Civil War page. Does a lot. We'll talk with him about all kinds of public history activities. On the 26th, Wade Sokolowski returns uh, to help us save the Wise Fork battlefield here in North Carolina being threatened with a uh, highway overpass uh, destroying what uh, what remains of that battlefield. And on November 2nd, Clayton Butler 
will be our guest. He's written a new book uh, called True Blue. It's about white unionists in the Deep South during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, as many historians are doing, he follows the story into Reconstruction. And we'll have lots more in November and December. Um, Brad Gottfried will be back on the show. He's been here before. Donna McCreary, uh, a expert on the life of Mary Lincoln, will be with us uh, in December. So lots of good stuff coming up. You can always find out at www.impedimentsofwar, all one word, .org. And while you're there, you can click on the uh, PayPal button and donate to the Civil War Talk Radio book fund, book and bourbon, not bourbon and cigars, I don't care for cigars, uh, book, bourbon, and new hot water heater fund. It is not a charity. It is not a 501c3. Don't deduct it on your taxes. Uh, but do feel free to contribute to the show. If you do as little as make a $5 monthly recurring donation, and you don't even need to be a PayPal member to do this, they, they magically will take your money. Uh, but if you do that, the rest of the show, tonight and every night, will be so much more enjoyable because the, the crippling hand of guilt will be relieved uh, from constricting your every waking thought uh, that you enjoy the show and yet do not donate to it. So uh, that's just a public service announcement uh, for your benefit. Consider a contribution to Civil War Talk Radio. Well, making a important contribution tonight is our guest, Jeffrey D. Wirt. He is the author of... The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. Mr. Wirt, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, your, your name on the cover is Jeffrey. Do you go by Jeff? Is that okay? Or, yeah, uh, Jeffrey. good. Okay, and Jerry is, is good for me, so we're, we're all square here. Uh, you've written a great deal about the Civil War, and... Uh, Somehow, uh, we haven't crossed paths before on the show, so I'm really delighted uh, to ha that you're able to, to join us tonight uh, with this really, uh, uh, I'm grasping for the word, I was going to say entertaining new book, but entertainment is not the right word, um, uh, uh, enthralling, uh, maybe that's, it, it, it was a page turner, uh, we all know well, thank you. who's going to win the battle, but the way you've described it is, is uh, uh, it's quite something. But let me ask you, this battle has been described many times. Um, you know, there, there are lots of books, uh, you know, uh, Summer and, and Trudeau and, and Gordon Ray, and lots of people have written about uh, the Overland campaign. Why a new book on Spotsylvania? Well, I was, uh, it was, I think, five years ago now. It was actually in the winter, it was February, and my wife and I were in the Fredericksburg area, and I said to her, I said, let's go out to the Spotsylvania battlefield. I haven't been there in a while. And I said, well, I ended up at the mule shoe, and I'm standing there, and she always helps me with research and other things. And I said to her, you know, there's a good story here. And to me, that's always been why I chose the subjects I chose, if they were of interest to me. Mm -hmm. I came home, and I looked, and, Mace, and I knew all, you know, Trudeau's, uh, Gordon mm -hmm. Ray's, you know, magisterial five-volume work on the Overland Campaign, of course. Right. Uh, uh, Modder's book. They're all there. And what I found out was there was only one book specifically dedicated 
to the Muleshoe fight, and that was about 15 years ago at mm-hmm. the time, so it's been about 20 years ago now. And it was a good book, uh, but it no uh, manuscript sources, diaries, uh, a few soldier accounts, you know, the things that are expected of a Civil War historian to do today. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to look at it. Uh, you, you've heard this from many historians, Jerry. I'm sure you, you know you know something, right? And I've covered it in my other books, of course, uh, that dealt with this period of time. But once you steep yourself in it, it opens up things that you never, you, you simply never knew. And uh, I was struck, to tell you the truth, by all the the accounts of the men who fought there and what this place was like uh, to them. It, uh, it 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 was well the heart of the book. Uh, the title of the book comes from a a quote after the war, of course, but it, it conveyed it, I thought, better than anything else I could have used for a title. And I usually prefer titles that are clear to people, but I just couldn't turn this down because it gets to the essence of this fight, as you well know. Well, it, it really, it does. I mean, the, the, the descriptions are, are just, you know, you, it's like a train wreck you can't turn away from, from reading one after another. Uh, but it's interesting, you you. This, this project got its start from a, a visit to the site. One of the things that strikes me about Spotsylvania is how uh, utterly beautiful it is today, just how bucolic the, the, the scene mm-hmm. is. I, I've never been there in winter, but I, I can imagine it must be equally haunting. Uh, and the contrast between that and what happened there, is, isn't that something? Well, it was. Uh, you know, all the homes are gone, the Landrum, the uh, uh Woodshaw Farms and McCool, the uh, Harrison home, they're all gone. And, you know, and there's slight remains, as you see, of the, the where the earthworks were, where the you know, apex of the mule shoe was. All the traverses have long disappeared. In fact, we, we're not even sure how many there were. Uh, we have counts of what their sizes were. I mean, they're critical to the story uh, for the Confederates. Uh, but you're right. And then, you know, many trips back, even in the spring and summer. But in the winter like that, it, it was starkly different. I agree with you. And it probably captured a little bit of what that place was at one time. Uh, I've always, people have asked me since the book came out, and I say this, it's one of those places where the veterans had no intention of coming back for reunions. They just, no, that, that <laughs> they just didn't. Uh, uh, because of what they went through while they were fighting on that day. Uh, that, that, that makes sense when you say it that way, that the idea of, of coming back for any kind of reunion or having what happened to Gettysburg, having it commercialized, that just uh, is so, so incompatible with what actually happened there. That not surprising it didn't, they didn't do that. Well, the, the, l- let me ask one brief question before we dive into the details. Um, uh, one of the many things I, I very much enjoyed about this book were the excellent maps. Uh, George Skoke uh, did your maps. Uh, they are, they're, they're very clear. Uh, he and Hal Jesperson should have an iron cage match for greatest Civil War cartographer because they're both so good. Um, did, authors aren't always well served by their map makers. Did you work closely with him or just say here's what to do how did that work out no no george and i we george has done work for me in the past mm-hmm. uh for numbers of my books and uh uh his knowledge and i sent him in my entire manuscript uh mm-hmm. you know and uh 
he went through it, and then we would correspond and we talk. And oh no, the, and then he would send me the rough drafts of maps, and I would correct him or say, "No, this is good." And and he had some really good ideas at the same time. Uh, I mean, he, that's what he does, and he does it extremely well, yes. as you said. And so mm-hmm. I relied a lot on him, and he looked at other maps. You know, and no, we worked closely together on it. Well, it, it shows because there's nothing more frustrating than you're reading an account and the author describes things at, say, the regimental level and the maps only show divisions, or the author describes just divisions and the, the map maker crowds it with regiments, and, and these maps fit the text beautifully. Well, well I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Let, let's move on to the, the battle itself. Um, this is part of the Overland campaign, as we know. Uh, since it's such a big story, we'll take a short break right now and come back uh, and, and, and discuss what happened at the Bloody Angle. We're talking tonight with Jeffrey D. Wirt, author of The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jeffrey D. Wirt, author of The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. So, Jeff, how did the armies get to Spotsylvania? What what was there to fight over at that place? Well, on May the 4th, 1864, the Army of the Potomac crossed the Rapidan River, uh, initiating their offensive, the spring offensive in Virginia. Uh, it was a coordinated offensive. You know, we're, your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Sherman uh, advancing into Georgia. Uh, there was the Shenandoah Valley one. 
But, of course, Grant went with the Army of Potomac under Meade, and uh, on May 5th and 6th, they fought a uh, two-day struggle in the wilderness. With Grant, everything was different. Uh, the main thing was that uh, the wilderness is probably a tactical standoff, yet the Confederates could argue that they won the victory there because they held their lines. But uh, Grant, there was no turning back, and uh, he ordered on May the 7th a movement south towards Richmond. And uh, and so on May the May May the eighth, the movements began. Well, through the night of May seventh into the morning of May eighth, and the Spotsylvania Courthouse was a crossroads, and the Confederates literally by minutes reached what became the Spotsylvania battlefield, particularly Laurel Hill, uh, uh, before the Union uh, Fifth Corps got there, and uh, they would fight that day and. Throughout the 8th, the, both armies would come onto the battlefield, and as the Confederates came onto the battlefield, they, they would extend their lines north and uh, east uh, farther uh, until late at night, probably it was dark, um, somewhere around 9, 10 o'clock, uh, the Confederate division of Edward Johnson arrived on the battlefield. They stumbled through the darkness. Uh, Johnson got to this rise in the ground, uh, uh, a ridge like uh, it wasn't a high ridge or anything, but it was a rise in ground, and he halted there, and he ordered his troops to start building field works. Uh, most of the troops ignored it; they were exhausted, and they went to sleep. And the next morning, uh, work would begin in what became known as the the salient, or soldiers described it as looking like a mule shoe. Uh, but this is really, uh, well, there was field works in the Mine Run campaign. If visitors, uh, listeners have been to Gettysburg, of course. You can see the re- outline of remains of the field works on Culp's Hill. But Spotsylvania marks a departure, I think, because of the extensive nature of them, the, the types of field works that the soldiers are going to build. And this is going to be characteristic of the rest of the war in the East and, and other places. And uh, so... Uh, ninth, uh, the Federals are going to regroup, extend their lines. There's some action on the Ninth, and then on the Tenth, there's more action on Laurel Hill, uh, further attacks on that strong Confederate position. And honestly, neither Grant nor Meade or any of his, their key subordinates knew. They knew these were, there were the Confederate defenses here near the Fredericksburg Road, but they didn't know the extent of them. They didn't know how many artillery cannon were in them, how many infantry defenders. And uh, on May the 9th, Colonel Emory Upton, the brigade commander, proposed an assault on this Confederate defenses. And I'm sure many listeners are familiar with it. Let me jump in and ask a question. You point out in your book that this salient, the you know, is is a three-sided military uh, defensive formation. That it's not inherently strong. It's it's inherently weak. And and even at the time, people recognized this was not a really good position. But leaves the master defender. The Confederates have good engineers. Why why did they build a such a vulnerable position? Well, well the, what happens is in the morning of May the ninth. In fact, Lee rides to. Uh, the position. Now, Johnson, of course, is under Richard Ewell, and Ewell's mm-hmm. here, and uh, Lee rides into the mule shoe, uh, 
probably halts near the McCool Farm, which is really in the heart of the mule shoe, if you will. And he looks over the ground, and he, and he said, this is a, I think the word is, this is a wretched line. I don't see how it can be held. And you and Johnson argue, well, if we give up this high ground here, the Union are going to move artillery forward, and they're going to shell our other parts of our line, so we have to hold it reluctantly. And, uh, well, another one, uh, Porter Alexander uh, said the same thing, and he was a brilliant uh, engineer. He was an artillery officer by now, but brilliant engineer, because the salient is vulnerable on three sides. You know, you can hit them on right. the east or the west side in this case, and from the north. So under an attack, if say if you break through on the east side, you're going to endanger all the defenders on the to your right on the north mm-hmm. side or in front of you on the west side. That was the problem with the salient. So Lee reluctantly agreed to it. He said, but you're going to have to place artillery batteries in the salient to support the infantry, and the men are going to have to build uh, breastworks. And uh, what happens is they uh, they put in 29 cannon uh, behind the defenders. And the main defenders of the the salient, as we know it, the mule shoe, were Edward Johnson's 4,000 troops, and then parts of... uh, Robert Rose's division, and they were down along the western face of it, and there were some uh, under James Lane's Brigade of the Third Corps on the eastern face. But essentially, oh, probably at the time, there may be, if you want to count within the mule shoe, there might have been the total, uh, we think of it, of about maybe 7,000 troops, if we're that many. Hmm. You know, that- it's hard to, you can take a couple of Rose's brigades and count them, but, uh, yeah. you know, the mule shoe ended up being about a half a mile deep from its apex south. So it's a substantial position. You started to mention Emery Upton, who's a very innovative thinker, and and Mm -hmm. he leads an attack on this position before the main one that you describe that actually is quite successful. Uh, What what did he do that worked so well? Well, he had been part of the attack at uh, Rappahannock Station in November '60. Three and they had stacked some regiments, and so what he proposed to instead of the the linear lines that we're familiar with, uh, you know, regiment next to regiment next to regiment, he decided to stack uh, twelve regiments. He asked for a dozen regiments. He would put three a uh, front of three regiments apiece uh, and stack them in four lines. And as the first line would go through and hopefully break through, and they would scour left and right down the trenches, and then the second one would come in and go drive straight ahead. And then the third and fourth would come in and support. And it, the attack went forward. He got approval for it. It went up to headquarters of the Army and that. And he got approval. And it went forward at about 6.30. And they were initially successful. The problem was he was supposed to be supported by Gershom Mott's 2nd Corps Division to follow up on the attack. And they really didn't do anything. Some artillery, Confederate artillery stopped them cold in the tracks. And Confederate reserves, now the one thing good about a salient is you can you have the interior lines and you can shift troops very quickly to it. Mm-hmm. And the Confederate reserves drove uh, Upton's uh, force back out of the uh, salient. He attacked an outer, a smaller salient just on the outside of the western face. It became known as Dole's salient for Joel's mm-hmm. Dole. North Carolina.
Carolinians defended it, but they're driven back. News of the initial success reached Meade and then Grant. And Grant decides that, well, maybe if we use the same kind of a formation on a more massive scale, we may be able to crush these Confederate defenses that are there. Again, though, the critical thing is nobody knew the extent of the mule shoe, how many troops were defending it, how many artillery were in place. They would not even know that until they stepped forth on the morning of uh, May the 12th. So the attack is not as the, the the main attack on the twelfth is not as foolhardy as, as one might assume because they've got this example of Upton's uh, limited success, and uh, as you point out in the book, uh, what the, another thing the the federal officers don't know but would have been glad to hear was that Lee had begun pulling some of the valuable artillery out of the mule shoe. Why why did he do that? Well, on uh, late on the day of May eleventh. Reports kept coming in from skirmishers at the front. They heard things. And then he, late in the afternoon, I think it was somewhere around 4.30 or so, he got a message from his son, Rooney Lee, a cavalry commander, mm-hmm. that there was movement that appears that the Federals are moving towards Fredericksburg. Uh, Rooney Lee's uh, brigade was on the, uh, near the Fredericksburg Road to the east of the salient. Uh, and he detected this, and uh, actually it was Burnside's Ninth Corps shifting things around because they're going to be part of the assault on May the 12th. Lee, well, Gordon Ray says it. He says it's the worst decision Lee made during the campaign, and that's true. It's, it's, it's a considerable misjudgment. What Lee concludes is that Grant is doing what he did on May the night of May the 7th and May the 8th. He's going to sidle to the south try to interpose his army between Lee's army and Richmond, and Lee has to react to that. And at the same time, Lee wanted to be prepared in case they could cap, they could hit part of the Union army on the march, maybe cripple units in that army. This is the aggressive aspect of Lee. But to get the artillery out of the sailing would have taken time in the next morning when they're going to move because there was a they, they cleared a wretched road, if you want to call it that, into it. And so he ordered the withdrawal of the 29 cannon. He replaced them with two batteries of eight cannon. So the reason why he said the, the sailing was defensible was no longer true. And that's why it's a serious misjudgment. I mean, it, it's going to put at risk uh, his entire army if the, the Federals are able to launch an attack that would crush the salient, if you will. Uh, and if, instead of retreating, the Federals are actually actually going to act aggressively, which in turn they are going to do. Now the attack goes forward, the Union attack goes forward, and as you say, the, the people leading it, the people ordering it, the people participating in it, none of them actually know where they're going. I mean, they know the Rebels are over there somewhere, uh, but they're in the dark, it's at night, they're, they're using compasses to make sure they go sort of the right direction. That just seems... Remarkable uh, that they would <laughs> well, do that. Francis Bar- well, it's the Second Corps, Winfield Scott mm-hmm. Hancock's Second Corps, which, mm-hmm. you know, arguably within the Army of Potomac, they're the best combat corps in the Army. Uh, and he is some gifted John Gibbon, uh, David Burney, uh, Francis Barlow, and uh, of course Gershom Mott, who I won't put in the same league as those three. Anyway, Barlow will later write about it. Uh, Barlow was one of those frank fellas. I mean, he yeah. he told things the way they were, and he said we were just lucky. Because-
because well, they relied on an officer in Watts aborted an attack on the tenth. He drew a map. The rendezvous point was the farmhouse of John and Elizabeth Brown, which is about anywhere from three quarters to a mile north of the salient apex. And he drew a, a rough sketch of a map on the wall and said that somehow, I guess, they detected that there was a white house. That would have been the McCool house, which was in the center of the uh, mule shoe. Mm-hmm. And that would be their target. And, of course, it's very dark. Rain has started to fall. Fog has settled in. In fact, Hancock, attack was supposed to go forward at 4 o'clock. Hancock delayed it to 4.30. And then finally he made the decision that they're going to go ahead. Now, interestingly, the only division commander who is going to stack his four brigades, and that's Barlow, Gibbon, mm-hmm. Bernie, Mott, they go with linear formations, which most listeners I'm sure are familiar with, uh, but Barlow will stack it, and uh, and they will go forward about 435. And as he said later, uh, well, there's a sense of ludicrous about the whole thing, you know, a sense of responsibility. But he said we are we ended up being lucky to hit the place, and they do now, hit it. They, they hit it hard. They they break through. Yes. They they smash Johnson's division. Yes, he did. Uh, at, uh, at one point, the ones with a uh, initial hit on the western face, uh, Witcher's brigade. Uh, uh, he was reduced by three regiments, and they were they were just around the eastern angle, they would call it, on the western eastern face. His other three regiments had been to the front of skirmishers along the Willis Landrum farm lane, and uh, they were overrun. And the Federals, oh, what do they do? They pour over the works. Uh, and the works, just to people, they were four foot, they were built of logs and dirt. Mm-hmm. They were four foot high. They had a head log and a firing space. And they also the trench was dug two feet deep, so it's about six. And so then he built a wooden step uh, to stand on. And most of the troops were in were in the the works. Uh, Johnson ordered them. He became very concerned about it. And in fact, Ewell ordered some artillery batteries back into the salient because all the signs were of a federal attack from their skirmishers and other reports. So they were in the process of doing that. The only thing that happens with those two batteries that get back in there, they just come back in and they're basically overrun mm-hmm. with this attack. But you're right. There is resistance. Uh, Johnson's men will resist, but the fact of the matter is that upwards of 3,000 to 3,500 of them are captured. Uh, but along the sides of the salient, the other units, they're going to stop that and then what happens which is critical to the understanding of this is men like Barlow, Gibbon, Bernie uh, brigade commanders they lose control of the situation uh, the federals the officers and men in the regiments and brigades are so pleased with what had happened that a mob of a disorganized mob are going to head south through the salient and Meanwhile, of course, part of what Lee had ordered was a, they built a line of reserve works at the base of the salient. And all the Confederates were in these traverses, which were built at angles to the uh, the main works. And they become critical to the defense uh, of the for the Confederates. The Confederates said they never could have held the mule shoe without these traverses because they protected them from flank fire. But some of the worst fighting occurs in, within these traverses.
versus their three-sided things, uh, maybe 12 to 15 feet in length. They're, as I said, there's no trace of them today, so you have to so, imagine what they were and where they were. But accounts are pretty clear about them. So then this mob of Federals are heading south towards this reserve line of works. Fortunately for the Confederates and Lee's <laughs> army, they have one of the best uh, generals, battlefield generals, in command of the brigade. Now, and that's John Gordon. He had just been so, given division command uh, because early he had been promoted to command of the Third Corps because A.P. Hill was sick. I don't want. But anyways, Gordon has two brigades there. One brigade he sent forward earlier, and he has two brigades there at the base near the base of the works, and they're going to. He's going to counterattack with them. Interestingly, Lee is with them, and it appears like Lee wants to lead the attack. Let me step in at this point, because I want to ask you about that, about Leeds' participation here. But we do have to take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment uh, to talk more about what happened at the Mule Shoe, described in the book The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. We're talking with the book's author, Jeffrey D. Wirt. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jeffrey D. Wirt, author of The Heart of Hell, The Soldier's Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. We've been talking about how the initial Union attack on May 12, 1864, uh, broke into the, the Confederate fortified line at the, the mule shoe at the salient of Spotsylvania, uh, drove Johnson's division back, captured a big part of it, including its commander. And then uh, with with the end of the Confederacy in sight, there is Robert E. Lee himself 
helping to rally troops. Now, uh, Jeff, in, in your book, you mentioned that there are conflicting accounts of, of what Lee did here. What what do we know about what, what his participation was? Well, uh, there, the conflicting account is, what, was he really intended to lead the attack? You know, now, just jumping back a little, on mm-hmm. the evening of May the 10th, when Upton attacked, Lee rode towards that scene. In fact, uh, I think a artillery shell exploded under Traveler. He was that mm. close to it, and some of the uh, couriers in them were, you know, hit with him, and the staff was worried. And again, he's there, and Gordon tells him, you know, and Gordon says he, he wasn't sure whether Lee wanted to do that, but it looked like he wanted to lead the attack. But they were uh, they convinced him, and it was uh, a sergeant in one of the Virginia regiments. Uh, grabbed uh, the, the reins of a uh, traveler and turned him around and he let him back. Uh, we don't know for sure. It's almost like, you know, the wilderness in the morning of May the 6th. But this will be the third incident where Lee is right near the front of the action and has the indication that he may want to lead, lead an assault. Probably, it's, it's, it's there, Gordon wasn't even sure, so if Gordon's not sure, I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to presume <laughs> that he planned it. But Lee, you know, Lee, personality-wise, was a combative man. So, right. Uh, and he, and he's, as you just said, he's staring uh, possible destruction of his army right in front of him. Now, they can't see much at this time. The fog's still there. The rain's there. It has, the fog hasn't lifted, but all these sounds are ahead of him. And there's a disaster, and you see uh, men from Johnson's division streaming through the fog, saying that the Yankees are coming and all that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Lee doesn't literally lead troops into battle, but you mentioned John Gordon. He does. Uh, and, and the result is a, a stalemate develops. But this attack was supposed to get support from other Union units. Um, you know, what what are what's the Ninth Corps doing? What's the Sixth Corps doing? What what is everybody else doing? Well, the Ninth Corps was supposed to attack at the same time, and they're not going to attack until hours later. Uh, Ambrose Burnside is at the point where you think that he can't even command the corps, let alone you did command an army at the disaster in Fredericksburg. Uh, the Sixth Corps is going to enter the action. And they were supposed to. The Fifth Corps, they're going to order to uh, attack Laurel Hill to prevent reinforcements going to the main assault on the Mule Shoe. The Sixth Corps troops are going to get into the action. Now they're going to be later, uh, uh, but they they were the support, and they're coming up in support. And they uh, they are going to be in the. We we think of the Second Corps, but uh, the Second and Sixth Corps units are going to bear the brunt of the fighting from the Union side. Ninth Corps will launch an attack in the morning, late in the morning, and then one in the afternoon, and that both of them are repulsed. Uh, all they do is add casualties to the situation. But it does become a bloody stalemate. Uh, I guess if people want to understand, I think it's the words of uh, Lieutenant James Caldwell, the 1st South Carolina, Samuel McGowan's brigade. By the way, all the Captain Gordon's three brigades, there are six other Confederate brigades that are going to counterattack into mm-hmm. the mule shoe and try take the original works as the men called them and then uh, fight for the traverses. But it, it came at a point where, and that's what Caldwell said, it wasn't a matter of risking life or death. 
it was a matter of accepting death. So if you're there, you got to realize that you probably aren't going to live through it. And uh, and think about this. They're what three to four feet apart. If you want to add the dirt, and this is going to go on hour after hour after hour. And for the Confederates, they were trapped. They couldn't get out. The Union would start to rotate in and out a little bit. Well, th- this is really where we get to, uh, as your book title says, the heart of hell. That that for for hour upon hour now, as the Confederates gradually retake their their fortifications, you got Union troops on one side of a mound of dirt, Confederates in the trench on the other side, and they're uh, y- y- you say they're they're literally fighting hand to hand. They're they're shooting at each other at point blank range, or they're stabbing with bayonets uh you, you mm-hmm. describe people fighting with hatchets even uh yes yes there were some confederates used hatchets uh uh there was men who i how do you explain it uh they would jump up yankee or rebel would jump mm-hmm. up on the breastworks and fire down right down into the faces of their foes while comrades passed rifles up nearly all of them were shot down uh, one of them, uh, on Knowles, I think from Maine, memory serves me here, mm-hmm. uh, he had, he survived. He won the end of the Medal of Honor, but, uh, there, you know, there was different ones. And, uh, and it, the fight for the trench, uh, for the traverses literally were, uh, it was like, I use the word crawl and almost the fact where the Confederates had to crawl up the rise and through the traverses to, to wrench them from the Yankees who were still holding them. And they never cleared all of them out. Uh, mm-hmm. There were still probably a few pockets of it, but uh, most of the fighting was concentrated on the western face and the westerns. The apex was about 300 yards long. There was a west angle and an east angle, the bloody angle, uh, the heart of hell, if you will, and that's from a quote uh, mm-hmm. from a Confederate veteran, uh, was the west angle. And that's where people, listeners are familiar, that's, it was right behind that west angle, uh, behind McGowan, South Carolinians, where the, the oak tree was cut down. Uh, mm-hmm. It was 22 inches in diameter. Uh, it was cut down by rifle and artillery fire about midnight. It toppled. Now, it, it was. It, say in in uh, John Keegan's famous book, The Face of Battle. In the introduction, he writes about how hard it was to type out the words as he's describing the Battle of the Somme in eighteen in nineteen sixteen, in the Western Front, World War One, um, because of the, the the horror and the the futility and the casualties. As, as a writer, did you ever have moments when you're reading an account of this or writing your account of this where where you just had to stop? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, let me go back a little bit. Um, when I was doing my book in the third day at Gettysburg, mm-hmm. uh, and by the way, I write all my books in legal pads uh, oh. with note cards. My wife types everything, and she's my first editor. And one day she came to me and she said, you're depressed. And I looked at her and I thought, this is, what do you mean I'm depressed? <laughs> and I think it was the same here. You're right. I, mm-hmm. you, this, I will be honest. This, this, these accounts of these men and what they went through stunned me. Mm-hmm. Because there was nothing like it in the Civil War. There's, there's simply not any battle that compares to these 20 hours or so at the Mule Shoe. 
and they're, they're, yeah, they do. Uh, uh, you're writing about them, and and you're trying uh, you're trying not to overdo it as an author. Right. You're trying to be careful with your words, your adjectives, if you will. I'm never one much for adverbs. Uh, mm-hmm. I prefer just clear, clear, do it and let them speak. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. I yeah, it's uh, uh, the. I, I said when I said I like this story, mm-hmm. and I knew there was a good story here. It was a better story than I ever thought, in the sense of trying to convey that story and tell their story. It wasn't my story; it's their story, mm-hmm. and you hope you could do it well enough to honor them and to show people what it was like on both sides, uh, mm-hmm. because it just a, it was just an awful place for that day. Well, I mean, that really comes through in in the book that. that First, I will say, you, you, I, 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 at no point did I feel like like there was any gratuitous detail. Uh, you, you avoid piling on, uh, you know, horror for the sake of horror, but it really is impossible not to recognize what, you know, the intensity of what happened here. And, and, and as you describe it, uh, it's very powerful and uh, very moving, really, to to read this. The uh, the the battle itself ultimately the the union forces fall back is is it all a uh, I don't want to say a waste uh, it, it, are any lessons learned are any tactical advantages gained when this is over that's a very good question too I I'm not sure about that I mean you know Grant's going to keep pushing ahead Lee mm-hmm. you know why it ended is Lee ordered another reserve line built and it was built about three-quarters of a mile south of the mules, mm-hmm. the apex of the mule shoe. And the, the, those lines were there. But the land, for you know well, the land's going to be scarred forever here during 64 mm-hmm. uh, and 65 with these miles and miles and miles of earthworks. And they're still going to do frontal attacks. And uh, men are going to die. What's interesting, for example, the Laurel Hill thing. Right. One of, I wrote about it. I, the, they were, with the, in my opinion, the best brigade in the Army of Potomac for a long time. That was the Iron Brigade, those sure. damn black hats, as the Confederates yes. called them. They went to ground Michigan. in front of Laurel Hill. They went, they went so far, and they said it was like this invisible line on that hill. If you go, mm-hmm. if you cross that line, you're dead. And they just they went to ground. So if the Iron Brigade is going to ground, mm-hmm. there's other units of lesser. Uh, whatever you want to call it, bravery, fiber, whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to go to ground. Uh, you're, these, these, these soldiers are... One thing that came out of it, I think, clearly with Laurel Hill and the Muleshoe, increasingly the soldiers saw the futility of frontal attacks. Mm-hmm. You know. But it, and, and that, I mean, there's Cold Harbor again, and there, you know, there's right. the early days of uh, uh, the Petersburg campaign, what, June mm-hmm. 15th, 16th or that? Yeah. So they keep doing, uh, as you say, the same thing. Um, yes. Well, let me ask you well, this. Way. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I, I, we're we're running close to the end, and I, I do want to ask um, if you have another project in the work. Uh, not at the moment. Um, all projects need a good idea, and mm-hmm. I seem to be bereft of good ideas uh, <laughs> at the moment. Uh I'm a slow worker. As I said, this this project was five years ago, uh, and it, I'm a slow writer, and uh, so I, I don't know. I'd, I'd I'd like I 
I want to tell somebody's story, but I don't know what that story's going to be yet. So, no, I've done a couple magazine articles again. I haven't done those in years because of working on books, but uh, right. that's what I'm doing right now. Well, that, that uh, this book will certainly tide us over. It is uh, uh, just truly a, a gripping story that uh, Thank you. The, what these soldiers went through. Uh, with 30 seconds to go, I, I can't resist asking this question, the Civil War time machine question. Uh, if you could go back to the the this era, this day, to May 12th, 1864, and spend 30 minutes with one person uh, in safety uh, and, and come back safely, <laughs> uh, uh, who would you want to talk to? Oh, boy, what a, what a great question. <laughs> um, I would think maybe the other Confederate hero of the battle, officer-wise, was Robert Rhodes. Mm-hmm. possibly ride with roads. He was sort of safe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to see it up close in the funnel, because he ended up all the, as the brigades came forward, they're all supposed to report to roads. They're all supposed to report to roads. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, if I had to pick someone like that, I'd probably choose him. Well, that would be, be a reasonable, reasonably safe choice. Uh, certainly all these other interesting people, one thinks of, uh, you know, oh, like yeah, they're, Upton, so, they're, they're so right there many, in the front uh, line. But they're all getting shot, uh, uh, yes. or shot at. So, oh, yeah. well, this uh, I enjoyed our conversation and, and enjoyed. And, and again, I'm trying to choose my words carefully. You know, it's not entertaining or enjoyment. Uh, it, it's it's educational, but that sounds like it's not fun. Um, it, it's a moving book, and and a book that describes, I think, does justice to the. Uh, uh, the struggle that these soldiers went through, and and it also does, I, I should say, it helps make clear the the tactical and and uh, uh, strategic importance of, of what's going on here. So so listeners, uh, this is a book uh, that's 200 pages of text won't take you a month to read, uh, but you will not forget it. It's called The Heart of Hell: The Soldiers' Struggle for Spotsylvania's Bloody Angle. The author is Jeffrey D. Wirt, who has been our guest tonight. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on Civil War Talk Radio. Oh, Jerry, thank you so much for the invitation. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.